Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, The Rising Tide, Series 1, Episode 24, or Episode 14, Under the Old Money. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding one in the History of England, and that I have restored this here merely for the sake of completeness and of ease. You will notice a change in the quality of recording in a minute, since... The original was recorded over a decade ago, and the world span just a little tiny bit slower. Last week we heard about the circumstances in which one of England's most infamous kings came to the throne. That is, Ethelred II, or Ethelred the Unready, as he's known. In 978, Ethelred came to the throne of probably the most organised and prosperous nation in Europe. By 1016, the year of his death, this kingdom had been comprehensively defeated and was under the rule of a foreign king. So is Ethelred the worst English king ever, or simply the most misunderstood? Not all the opinions from medieval sources are completely negative about Ethelred, but it is very close. We must also bear in mind that pretty much everything written about Ethelred was retrospective, and therefore in the full knowledge of the outcome, i.e. he lost. Strangely enough, Despite the hoo-ha about the murder of Edward, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles report of the accession is reasonably positive, and Ethelred is described generally as being graceful in manners and good-looking. But other comments from later chroniclers, which may very probably reflect older traditions, reflect a man who lacks energy and who is weak, therefore much given to sudden acts of overreaction and willful violence in a desperate attempt to reassert control over his situation. His nickname, Unready, does not actually mean unready, by the way. It's actually an Old English pun. Athelred in Old English means wise counsel, whereas unraid means poor counsel, 
So we get something on the lines of a couple of blokes sitting in a pub somewhere, and one of them says, Wise counsel? Rubbish counsel, more like. I'm not sure I can visualise a conversation like that in any pub I've gone to, but you know what I mean. Although we don't get a written version of the nickname before the 12th century, it does seem reasonably likely that the name reflects a contemporary saying. So anyway, you'll get a chance to judge for yourself what you think about Athelred, and whether he's quite as bad as history has painted him. He was just 13 when he became king in 978, and for the first six years he was clearly under the regency of his mother, Elfrith, and under the influence of the leading men who had put him on the throne men such as Elfir. Supporters of his brother Edward were firmly put to one side, so this is the end, for example, of the political influence of Dunstan. Dunstan retired to Canterbury. He retired to pray and teach, and had seen almost no more at all at court. In this early period, too, Ethelred got married to Elf Gifu, who is probably a daughter of a Danish earl of southern Northumbria, and this was therefore probably part of a very sensible strategy of combining to build his links between Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Danish communities. I thought it might be nice to have a quick summary of the situation in Scandinavia during the period of Athelred's rule as a bit of background, and also because frankly it gave me an excuse to learn a little tiny bit about Scandinavian history, which is nice. The political history of Norway over the period seems to be around three broad themes. Firstly, the slow process of creating a single state. Secondly, the spread of Christianity. And thirdly, their political relationship with Denmark, which is something that sounds awfully familiar to the story we've just been through with England. Before the 9th century, then, Norway consisted of a large number of small kingdoms and local rulers. Then tradition has it that in 872 a king called Harold Fairhair created a united Norwegian state. In truth, Harold's state doesn't correspond quite to modern Norway, but it was a step along the way. His was mainly a southern and a coastal state. It's also traditionally held that Harold's dynasty then ruled Norway until the death of Olav IV in 1387, but again this is a slight oversimplification. In fact, after Harold's death, a number of different leaders ruled, and sometimes those leaders were Harold's descendants, and sometimes they weren't. Meanwhile, the introduction of Christianity was an on-off affair. The first Christian king was Harkon the Good, in the first half of the 10th century. You may remember Harkon from a couple of weeks ago, when we heard about him as the foster son of Ethelstan. Harkon's approach, though, was not to enforce the adoption of Christianity and later rulers resisted it. One such example is a man called Jarl Harkon, who was not a descendant of Harold Fairhair, but supposedly a descendant of Ivor the Boneless again. Jarl Harkon seems to have pretended to adopt Christianity to win the favour of the King of Denmark, and then sent his priests packing as soon as he'd got what he wanted. Then in 995, Olaf I, otherwise known as Olaf Tryggvason, came to the throne of Norway. Since Olaf will play a part in our story, I'll give you a bit more detail about him. Olaf Tryggvason was a grandson of Harold Fairhair. Most of what we know about his early life comes from sagas, and if half of what I'm about to tell you is true, then he was quite a guy. 
His story is that he and his mother were forced to flee from the killers of Hakon the Good, and Olaf ended up being sold into slavery in Novgorod in Russia. Some time after that, Olaf managed to break free and began a life of raiding and fighting in the Baltic, including a spell fighting for the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto III, against the Danes. In the early 990s, his raiding took him to England, where he converted to Christianity. As we'll hear, he then returned to Norway to become king in 995, and he tried to impose Christianity on his people. His approach wasn't like that of Arkhan at all. He was pretty brutal, and pretty forthright in insisting that his Christianity thing was just not optional. After his death in a thousand, there is another period where Norway became subject to the kings of Denmark, and it's in this period that a Dane called Svein Forkbeard appears, who we'll talk about in just a minute. But just to finish the Norwegian story, we then get the Norwegian king Olaf II. Olaf II later becomes known as Saint Olaf, and his claim to fame in his reign, which is from 1015 to 1030, was that he pretty much completed the job of making Norway Christian, again, without really offering his subjects any great option. Meanwhile, Denmark's history is a bit more simple and straightforward. So by the time of Ethelred's accession in England, that's in 978, Denmark had been ruled by Harold Bluetooth for over 20 years. Harold Bluetooth was a successful and forceful king, who after the Danish tradition of hundreds of years of disunion, had consolidated rule into his hands, and at the same time forcibly converted the Danes to Christianity. In the process, he made a lot of enemies, and that included his son, whose name was Swain Fortbeard. In 985 or 6, Svein deposed his father and became the king of Denmark. By the year 1000, then, Svein had imposed Danish rule on much of Norway as well, either by direct rule or through the allegiance of Norwegian lords, and he was looking for another challenge. This was to prove spectacularly bad news for England. So just to summarise all of that then, we've got political consolidation, particularly in Norway. We've got a largely dominant Denmark, and we've got a gradual imposition of Christianity on a none-too-willing population. OK? All of this stuff is vaguely relevant, by the way. The first recorded raids on England, which came in 980, were isolated and relatively small scale. Many of them were very probably a reaction to Harold Bluetooth's autocratic rule in Denmark and his harsh imposition of Christianity. So until 991, this was to be the model. And then after 991, very much like the Viking Wars of the previous century, we get much larger armies under the leadership of men of great stature. So men like Olaf Tryggvason in his raiding phase, before he returned to Norway to become its king. And then finally we get a phase we've not seen before, when in fact this becomes a battle between nations and not individuals. Svein Falkbeard's invasion was that of the king of a Scandinavian empire, if that's not too grand a phrase. Let's look at the first period then, between 980 and March 991. As I say, this was a period of relatively small-scale raids, individual leaders getting a number of ships together and going looking for plunder. In 980 to 983, there were three years of raids, mainly hitting the south and southeast, Dorset, Hampshire, Devon, Cornwall and Thanet. Most of these raids seemed to have been carried out more or less successfully by the raiders. 
The only possible exception is the battle recorded during the raid of 988 at the Somerset town of Watchet, where although the local thane was killed in battle, it is held that what the chroniclers like to call the place of slaughter was held at the end of the battle by the English. All of these place names again are going to mean maps, and I'm going to try and put one up on the website again just so that you know. By and large, these raids were sporadic and localised, and they didn't materially affect the national picture. We don't hear much about a national response, therefore, but Ethelred was clearly not completely idle. One of the approaches we know he took was to try to cut the Vikings off from as much support as possible. In this regard, as you may or may not know, Normandy had also been the subject of waves of Viking invasions, which had culminated in the establishment of a Danish state under Rollo. I have a vague memory that I've already told you this in a previous episode, but anyway. Anywho, although they quickly adopted the culture of Francia, the Normans did not entirely forget their Scandinavian past, and they were friendly to helping Vikings as they sailed south, giving them places of refuge and resupply. This led Athelred and Duke Richard I of Normandy into direct conflict, and by 990 this conflict was fierce enough to have reached the ears of Pope John. Pope John brokered an agreement then between Athelred and Richard, which provided that neither nation should support each other's enemies. Somewhere during this period, the regency of Ethelred's mother, Elthrith, comes to an end, and Ethelred took over personal control. In 983, the powerful alderman Elfir died. You may remember that Elfir's main opponent during the succession crisis over Edward was an alderman called Ethelwyn. But from this moment forward, Ethelwyn becomes the leading figure at Ethelred's court. You'll also remember that Athelwyn and Athelred's mother didn't see eye to eye, and it can't be entirely coincidental then that around this time in 984, Athelwyn's old enemy Elthrith retired from the court. She went on to found a nunnery in Hampshire and died before 1001, and therefore mercifully before the extent of her son's failure had become clear. Athelred was now 18 and all of this seems pretty clearly to have been him asserting his authority and becoming his own man. Athelwyn was to die nine years later in 992, and with him the link with his father's advisers was finally broken. It was to be one of Athelred's biggest failures that he did not manage to replace these men with men of equal knowledge and stature. So the Athelred poor counsel thing starts right here. It's in 991 that things start to get more serious, and our old friend Olaf Tryggvason arrived on the coast of England. Things have become more serious because, as I say, now we have leaders of national reputation, who can command much bigger armies, and conversely are looking for much bigger rewards. Olaf commanded 93 ships, so he could have had an army as big as 4,000 men with him. They raided the southeastern coast, Folkestone, Sandwich, Ipswich, and then to the mouth of the river Blackwater in Essex, where they arrived at a place called Malden. The Battle of Malden is particularly remembered because of the magnificent poem written about it in Old English. Without wanting to be too bitter, the tale has all the ingredients the English love to sing about, the story of a heroic failure. The heroes of the story are the Earl Berthnoth and his men, who opposed the Viking army there. Berthnoth showed all the characteristics of the hero, brave, but possibly not the sharpest knife in the drawer. The Norsemen started by asking for money to go away, 
To which Berthnoth stoutly replies, Hearest thou, sea robber, what this people say? For tribute they are ready to give you their spears, the edge, poison bitter, and the ancient sword. So that'll be a no, then. Sadly, Berthnoth then followed this up by gallantly inviting the Danes to cross a narrow causeway before being attacked, so that they could fight on equal terms, rather than being beaten. This turned out to be tragic overconfidence, for the battle was effectively over when Berthnoth was killed by a Viking spear. This led to part of the army under two Anglo-Danish lords called Godric and Godwy panicking and fleeing. Now, cast your mind back to 757 and Kinwolf, one of the early West Saxon kings, and his struggle with his competing atheling, Kinherd. You would almost certainly remember that Kinwolf was surprised by Kinherd and slaughtered. Kinwolf's men were offered their lives by the victorious Kinherd, but said they'd rather die than desert their lord, even in death. We see some of the same tradition in the Battle of Morden. One of the thanes, faced with overwhelming odds, says this. I do promise this, that I will not hence fly a footstep, but shall further go to avenge in the war my friendly lord. Then shall not need in Sturmere the steadfast soldiers to twit me with words, now my friend is fallen, for that I returned home without my lord, turned from the battle. But the sword shall take me, the point and the steel. The result, of course, was the same, and the invaders had won another victory. This was enough for the English, and Ethelred then started on his disastrous path of appeasement, for he concluded a peace treaty with Olaf. There was a written treaty covering matters of protecting traders, and promises from Olaf that he would help Ethelred defend England against any future raiders. Most of this was no doubt tripe, there to give Ethelred some face, and the real point of the treaty was the enormous sum of £10,000 paid to the raiders for them to go away. It's not entirely clear, then, whether the Viking army actually left. And in 992, we begin to see one of the main reasons why Ethelred's reign ends in chaos, death and disaster, his inability to select the right men for the job. But it's also worth noting that poor old Ethelred was himself let down by the very men that were supposed to help him defend his kingdom, and who held land and power for that very reason. One of the features of Ethelred's reign is that both king and aristocracy had grown to love the trappings and comforts of power, but were not prepared to earn them and use them. So in 992 Ethelwyn died, and Ethelred reorganised his military commanders, and decided that something needed to be done to get rid of the Norse invaders. His plan was to fight back, using the much-vaunted fleet that had defended Edgar's England so successfully. The complete fleet was to gather in London and attack the Viking fleet, and tried to destroy them that way. Ethelred appointed commanders, Alderman Thorod, the Northumbrian lord who was the father of Ethelred's first wife, and a man called Alderman Elfric. As so often in Anglo-Saxon England, the church was also involved in the violence, with two bishops also appointed to command, and no sign anywhere of any feelings about a need to separate church and state. What followed was a complete disaster. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has it that Elfric betrayed the plan to the Danes. There are then very conflicting reviews of what happened next, and it's at least possible that a large part of the English fleet was destroyed. It's all rather difficult. We also hear that in 994, Athelred had Elfric's son's eyes put out. 
This was obviously in revenge for the betrayal, and it also rather suggests that Elfric had stayed in the enemy's camp. But there's no real explanation as to why Elfric had betrayed them in the first place. Despite all this, nine years later in 1003, we'll see Elfric and his cowardice back in the story on the English side. This is either a confusion amongst the chroniclers, or surely evidence of a quite extraordinarily risky approach by Ethelred as to who he trusted. But whatever the truth about Elfric, at the very least the whole episode in 992 demonstrated an ineffective king, unreliable alderman and inept leadership. Believe me, we'll be hearing more about stuff like that. The following year, 993, is interesting in that it gives some insight into the attitudes of the Anglo-Danes, who might be expected to have some split loyalties. And this does seem to be the case. While it's true that by the end of Edgar's reign it seemed inconceivable that England would split up into its old divisions again, there seems to be evidence that many of the Anglo-Danes would have been just as happy to have a Scandinavian king as an English one. So maybe it's hard to blame Godric anyway for his flight at Morden once Berthnot had fallen, but just maybe his support was already a bit lukewarm. And in 993, when the Vikings set out on a rampage in the north, where Danish loyalties could be expected to be the most ambivalent, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that the Danish lords were the first to flee from the battle. Maybe this is simply a military defeat, but just maybe it's also about a lack of enthusiasm to risk too much for an Anglo-Saxon king. During that year, Bamber in the northeast was destroyed, and Lindsay in Northumbria ravaged and plundered. In 994, the stakes are again raised by the Scandinavians, as both Olaf and Svein Forkbeard come to London together, this time with 94 ships, so again a very substantial army. The appearance of the Danish king in this war is very significant, because the scale of the threat to England is now very clearly at a national level. It's about quantity, but it's also about quality. With Svein came a very different class of warrior and military organisation than England had seen so far with the rather disconnected Norse bands they'd had to deal with. One of the reasons for the success of Svein's father Harold Bluetooth in uniting the Danes had been his creation of a highly trained professional army. Svein took this even further with the creation of large fortresses built to house military communities. The fortresses, like the example at Trelleborg, were planned with mathematical precision and meant that England was now fighting a disciplined and organised military machine, far more dangerous than they'd had to face so far, or even than they'd faced in the 9th century. 1994 for once started with a staunch English defence, and actually the one bright spot throughout the following 20 years would be London, which time and again successfully resisted the invaders. So Svein Forkbeard and Olaf Tryggvason set off into the southeast of England, plundering at will, through Essex, Kent, Sussex, ending up at Southampton. Here again the English decided they couldn't stop the Viking raiders, and paid them off with a yet larger tribute of £16,000. Ethelred also had a small stroke of luck here, in that the alliance between Olaf and Svein was not a natural situation for either of them, and whether by accident or design, Ethelred managed to detach Olaf from the campaign. Ethelred sent a bishop and his leading alderman Athelward to meet with Olaf. 
and they managed to arrange a very public meeting between Olaf and Ethelred at Andover. At that meeting, Olaf was converted to Christianity, and he promised to leave England and not return. And hey, wonder of wonders, he actually kept his word. Maybe because his plan now was to become the King of Norway, which he duly achieved. Trouble with telling the story of Ethelred is that it is essentially a relentless and sometimes monotonous record over thirty years of raids and war. So we have a brief pause in 995 and 6, and then between 997 and 999 we have three years of continuous warfare. The Danish army started in the west in Cornwall and Somerset in 997, then in 998 it was the turn of the south. Dorset, Hampshire, Sussex, while in 999 the Danes came once again into the Thames and Kent. In the words of Led Zeppelin, the song remains the same. Mobile, aggressive, disciplined Danish attacks faced by inept or no defence. 999 is actually a beautiful example. Early in the year, the Danes defeated the Third of Kent. Ethelred decided that it was time to do something, and that a combined land and sea operation was the best idea so the fleet was readied, but the generals proved incapable of agreeing the best course of action, and in the end the year drifted away and nothing was achieved except the cost of assembling the fleet. In the year of the millennium, the Danish army moved their activities to Normandy. Oddly, Ethelred then went to war against the Celts in Cumbria. I say oddly because you'd have thought they'd had plenty of war of their own with against the Danes without wanting to go and start something in Cumbria, and maybe the time would have been better put to use preparing the next onslaught from the Danes, but anyway clearly that's not the way Ethelred saw it. Whether they were provoked or not is not clear. Funnily enough, although it was successful enough this campaign, they still managed to mess part of it up, with the fleet not managing to meet up with the land army. And then the chaos resumed. 1001 was a year of good and bad. Good in that the English gathered their armies and fought for every yard in Hampshire and Devon. Sadly, the bad was a lot worse. Despite a successful defence of Exeter, the English lost all the battles, and a considerable number of the king's leading aldermen were killed. So in 1002, Ethelred had had enough again, and turned again to the expedient of paying the Danes off. This time the price was £24,000. The year also showed examples of the internecine fighting and distrust that prevented Ethelred from mounting an effective defence. An example is that Ethelred had enticed a Danish lord called Peleg to his service, and Peleg was made Earl of Devonshire as a reward. Presumably the idea was to use his experience, his knowledge of the Danes and his reputation to improve the English defence. But unfortunately, as soon as the Danes landed in Devon, he abandoned Ethelred and joined the Danes. Another example came in 1002, when there was a fight between two of the king's leading aldermen, Alderman Leafsiege, who killed a fellow alderman, Ifig, as a result of which Ethelred had also to banish Leafsiege. None of this can have helped mount a coherent defence. But the tribute had been paid, the Danes had left, and there was a chance to draw breath. Ethelred had pursued his policy of developing a close relationship with Normandy, 
and this was further sealed by marriage between Ethelred and the daughter of Richard of Normandy, Emma. This was a marriage that was to have long-term consequences, and you'll be coming across Emma again before too long. But then Ethelred appeared to completely lose the plot, and in 1002, on St Bryce's Day, he ordered the massacre of all the Danes in England. It is an unbelievable decision, though it supports the idea that there were plenty of Danes whose support for the English monarchy was lukewarm at best. But there was no way such an order could be carried out effectively, especially in the large parts of the north. Places like York were essentially Danish towns. There was also obviously no way to ensure a combined unified response to the Danish threat, quite apart from the brutality of it all. The St Bryce's Day Massacre was an act of a weak man in a panic. And incidentally, the massacre also killed the wife of Jarl Peleg, the guy we've just been talking about. And she also happened to be Svein Forkbeard's sister. So any chance there might have been of making the last round of tribute stick was probably now gone. Svein had entered this war in 994 and had been plundering England now for eight years. Ethelred and England were very clearly in a complete mess, besieged on every side and with a dismal record against the Danish armies that must have really sapped their confidence. In many areas, the English response had been strategically inept and Ethelred had failed to show the leadership the English needed to fight back effectively. But the English government was still functioning. Svein Forkbeard still appeared to have no thought of conquering England, simply of emptying it of everything of value. At the end of 1002, Ethelred might actually have felt the return of some confidence. He'd paid off the Danes, he'd acquired a powerful ally through his marriage to Emma, and he presumably felt safer for having murdered a load of Anglo-Danes and heading off whatever plot he'd feared. But in fact, he'd lit the blue touch paper and was about to start another 12 years of constant conflict which would lead to the coronation of a new king. Plot spoiler. We'll hear who next time, and until then, good luck everyone and have a great week. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear.
That's K-N-I-X dot com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.